0: Intellectually, it's a really important, and spiritually for me. This is where I had a kind of adult conversion, young adult conversion, to my Catholic faith. That was also an intellectual conversion for me. Those were inseparable because it was these, these deep intellectual doubts and questions which a year earlier, no one who knew me would have thought that something like that would have gripped me and made me take it seriously. And uh, and the teachers I had here did. And they were also helpful, even the atheists. They were good teachers. They taught me how to write. Uh, they taught me how to read carefully. And one of them was an ancient philosophy class where I read Plato and Aristotle, which prepared me to read Aquinas eventually. So I'm really, uh, really delighted and honored to have this invitation to be with the University of Maryland Catholic students and non-Catholic students here. And I am going to run through A few images, and then I'm going to talk a little bit, and then we'll go back through the images. This series of black and white prints, the Miserere, those of you who can read Latin at the bottom can see the Latin script there. This is from the opening of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God, according to your great mercy or compassion. That's the psalm. Uh, that the church in the Liturgy of the Hours prays every Friday morning as, as part of the reminiscence of Good Friday. This is actually, the series of prints is actually a, much more of a Lenten theme than it is an Easter theme, but we can always go back. We have, uh, we have Lenten moments uh, all through the year. Uh, Georges Rouault is a French painter who lived from the 1880s to the 1950s. He became a very good friend of one of the most, uh, convert as well, one of the most influential Catholics in the 20th century, Jacques Maritain, uh, who, uh, who he and his wife, Raisa, who converted from Judaism, Maritain converted from uh, agnosticism. They, in the early 20th century, were studying at the Sorbonne in Paris, and were in a kind of intellectual despair over the philosophy they were getting. And there's this great moment that she relates in her memoirs where they were standing on a bridge in Paris and made what was, in effect, a suicide pact that, uh, on the basis of philosophy, if you can believe that, they were in despair over the materialistic, skeptical philosophy that they were being given, which they thought made an ugly, painful comedy out of human life. Human desire, human love, human intellect, couldn't access the truth or the goodness or the beauty of the world. And so they said they would extend credit to the world for the next year in the hope that some path to truth would be revealed to them. But if at the end of that year no path had been revealed, they would end their lives. Fortunately for them and for us, They studied with not a Catholic philosopher, but Henri Bergson, who had a realist conception of the absolute, which gave them a path to the truth. They later, years later, converted to Catholicism. Breaux was also a a French Catholic. Um, This series of 58 prints, which he worked on, especially in the 20s, finally published in the 40s, these are composed right after the First World War. And the First World War had a traumatic effect on Western Europe, in part because everybody went into the war optimistic that it would be over quickly and it wouldn't be a big deal. And it turned out that trench warfare, you've seen maybe recent films uh, about this warfare, this is also what scarred Tolkien and inspired a lot of the themes in Lord of the Rings, The trench warfare was so barbaric that people and it lasted much longer than they thought it would. And they the trauma of soldiers coming back from the front lines was so great that the progressive optimistic view of the West and of science and technology was just shot through. So that there's widespread despair in the 20s and 30s in the West, particularly in Europe. Over the Western, modern progressive, rationalist program, and a sense of real human misery and despair. Roe lived in a poor part of Paris where he saw uh, the afflictions that happen to people when they live on the edge of human civilization and are battered by bad fortune. Let me go through a few of these images where moves back and forth between this has a religious title but a lot of the themes are secular and certainly the methods of art are quite secular i'm going to show about six or seven just get these in your imagination don't worry about figuring them out for the moment and we'll come back so here's the opening but notice that we have we have jesus in the you have a kind of angelic figure odd and odd looking angelic figure up on top Jesus is in the lower world, what they would have called at the time, still harkening back to an older cosmology, the sublunary world, the world beneath the moon, which is the world of change and affliction and suffering. Also, notice the posture of Christ, that slightly bent. There's another image of Christ. Jesus despised, always flagellated or beaten. These are actually the first few. I, I'm not giving you all 58. You'll be glad to know we're going to look at a few of the images. These are consecutive from the opening, and here's a man reaching out to a child. Take refuge. And these are all the opening thing is in Latin. And the rest of these are in French. Take refuge in your heart. You oops, sorry. You vagabond of misfortune. And then we have we skip ahead a little bit. We have this triptych. Of three images. One, two, three. Let me go back. French, are we not all convicts, evildoers, supposing ourselves kings? Who does not wear a mask or makeup? Notice, aren't we really sinners or convicts? <laughs> Thinking of ourselves as kings, who does not wear masks? mask? We'll come back to that. There are a bunch of images after this of sort of upper class people and judges and lawyers who are, the judges and lawyers are all indifferent to justice. The upper class are rich and haughty. There's one image of a woman, and it, underneath it, it's clearly dressed with lots of jewels and so forth, and it says she supposes that a place is reserved for her in heaven. And then we come to this image, which, and the interesting thing is, this is not a, a lot of these aren't sentences, but this is, this is a, uh, uh, just a phrase, um, a prepositional phrase. Under a Jesus on the cross, oublie la, totally forgotten. I think Rose's suggestion is that every image he's presented so far is under, in some sense under the cross under Jesus, on the cross, who has been totally forgotten. Now we have what looks like an image from a kind of cheap horror film, maybe, right? Uh, A tomb with a bunch of skulls in it. But the message is actually positive. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Sing matins, sing morning prayer, the day is renewed. And then the first image where Jesus is together in the same frame with an ordinary human being, Lord, it is you, recognize you. Bringing together, in a way, two passages that we've been reading after the resurrection, post-resurrection passages. There's there's a hint of Thomas, right, leaning toward the side, perhaps, I recognize you, and then perhaps the gospel from just last week, right, the journey to Emmaus, where they come to recognize him in the breaking of the word. The other interesting thing, and I've only got a couple images left, but I'm going to say a few things and we'll go back through them. Veronica. Who knows what Veronica name means? True image. True image. So the, you know the story of Veronica, right? <clears throat> of Veronica having a cloth that wipes the face of Christ as he's carrying his cross on the way to Calvary. Veronica with her tender linen passes along the way. This Veronica's veil shows up repeatedly. And the images are uh, different. Some of them almost look like a veil that has a post-resurrection Christ. This is clearly a Christ who has been brutally beaten. We want to say something about why he focuses. And these veil images, or images within images, here's a De Profundis out of the depths. That, that's a little bit different because it has actually a kind of halo-like atmosphere around it. Uh, but we have what looks like a corpse uh, with, uh, with a veil image looking down on the deceased. And then this is the final image in the whole thing. By his wounds you are healed. That's a really brutal image. It, it looks like the uh, crucifix in the Franciscan Hispanic church that I go to in Laco, Texas, uh, where there's a great deal of emphasis upon the physical bloody suffering Okay. I'm going to leave that there. Okay. So this is a short set of images. I think this is one of maybe the most important, most well-done series of religious art in the 20th century. The other one would be the Jewish painter Mark Chagall, who did a two, in fact, substantive series of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Chagall's Bible series. Let me talk a little bit about, and I want to hear from you in the question period about what your reaction is, if anything, to these images. Let me talk about sorrow, first of all. Miserere. According to thy great compassion or mercy, the term there is misericordia. Misericordia is the Latin term that Aquinas uses when he talks about uh, the virtue of mercy. Aquinas has a lot to say about sorrow in his writings on the human soul and on ethics. He's a lot to say about human passions and their role. I want to suggest to you that one of the ways into, one of the ways to access Aquinas' really complicated writings about ethics is simultaneously one of the ways to gain deeper self-knowledge uh, as you think about living your life and especially as you think about leading spiritual life. Think about the sort of things that make you sad and why and how you respond to sorrow. Aquinas talks about different species or types of sorrow. So he talks about things that are uh, causes of uh, sorrow and, uh, and their effect in the human soul. And he talks about two types I, when I first read this recently, I hadn't looked at it in a long time. And I was reading the English translation. So I thought that can't be right. Because it's translated as anxiety, the first type of soul, which the translator then went on to say depresses the human soul. So that sounds too contemporary. But it is. It's anxietas in Latin, literally. And the word for depress is aggravare, which we get aggravate or irritate from, but it also means to weigh down. To aggravate something is to weigh it down in addition to it. Aquinas thinks that the passions with respect to evils, and an evil can be something you identify as a moral evil, something you think that's wrong. It can also be anything that you find threatening or worrisome, right? something that you, that you wish were not there. Aquinas says, first we have the passion of fear. As the unwanted thing, the evil thing, approaches. Then, when we're beset with, when the evil is present, we experience sorrow over the presence of the evil. Then Aquinas thinks the next emotion is anger. So you have fear at an approaching evil, sorrow at the presence of an evil. And then anger kicks in. What Aquinas means by lots of things can happen with anger. Some good, some not so good. Anger kicks in because anger is the appetite that gets us ready to defend ourselves against something that we see as evil. That might mean in some cases if there's something evil happening that you can stop, that you are called, as Aquinas says, to pounce on evil, that you can actually actively fight it. Sometimes it's just find a way to resist it, not let it overcome you. Fear, sorrow, anger. I've been thinking a lot about this. We all do about our culture, which is not political and otherwise not great shit. There's a lot of anger, I think, on all sides. I sometimes wonder about that anger, if that anger is not sitting on top of, to use Aquinas's series of emotions, if the anger's not sitting on top of deep pools of sorrow, that we don't know what to do with uh, I gave a version of this talk a year or so ago much less developed version, uh, and Father Jonah Teller from down at the Dominican House was in the audience, and we were having a beer afterward. And he said to me, he said, you know, the interesting thing about sorrow or sadness as an emotion is it's not transitive. You can't pass on. I mean, if you're super down, you can make your friends super down over time with your family members, but you can't pass on sorrow. You can pass on anger. Right, You can get angry. I don't get sad at you. I get mad or angry at you. One of the ways to attempt to channel sorrow is to get angry. Sorrow is about evils that beset us that we can't seem to escape. Aquinas says anxiety is the first stage in that. That doesn't perfectly match what we mean by anxiety. When we feel like we can't get out from under it, the more extreme version of that he calls in Latin torpor or acchania, which is actually a separate vice. But accenia is when you become weighed down physically by the sorrow so that you find it difficult to move. And a really interesting thing that Aquinas says about this is that accenia or torpor can actually affect, he says, um, that uh, accenia... Uh, is said to amputare voce, to amputate the human voice, to cut it off. And he goes on to say, the voice is meant to give expression to the inner desires of the soul or of the heart. One of the extreme forms of sorrow is, and actually I have a colleague at Baylor who's writing an essay about how he lost his voice during covid And there was no physical uh, cause of this medically. He couldn't feel, and he thinks it was actually a kind of psychological result of the depression he was undergoing during COVID. There's another way to think about this with the amputation of the voice, which is that extreme sorrow, serious depression, one of the symptoms of it is having difficulty saying exactly what's wrong and why. Sometimes you can know, but Aquinas thinks that one of the symptoms of significant depression could be that you find it difficult to actually express what's on your mind or what's on your heart. Sorrow also shows up at the root of virtues and vices. I'm only going to talk about two. We'll talk about it, later. Envy and mercy are both types of sorrow, rooted in sorrow. Envy is sorrow over another's good fortune. Mercy is sorrow over another's bad fortune. I think it's really important whether the sorrow we experience with respect to others. We can be harmed by others, and that can make us sad. That's separate. Or we can lose someone who's close to us. That can make us sad. But when we think about others in comparison to ourselves, envy and mercy are both... Comparing others to ourselves. If I look at others and mainly think about what they have that I don't have, and thinking that that makes me look or feel less as a human being, then my sorrow is probably connected to something like envy. If, on the other hand, I look at others and I notice particularly those who are afflicted in certain ways, and I'm moved by their affliction to a kind of sadness or compassion, that shares in their affliction, and I'm moved by mercy. Aquinas talks about miserere or misericordia. Aquinas talks about um, obstacles to mercy, things that make us, as he says, insensible. We might say insensitive to mercy. Pride. The illusion of self-sufficiency, so that I think, well, those people deserve the afflictions that they have, I would never be in that situation. Also, avarice. Really interesting what Aquinas does with avarice, the desire for wealth or possessions. You may be familiar with a division between spiritual or intellectual sins and what is called carnal or bodily sins. Typically, pride, envy, and wrath of the seven deadly sins are considered spiritual sins and the others are considered carnal or bodily, including greed or avarice. Aquinas treats avarice as a spiritual sin because he thinks the root evil in avarice is my possessions making me think well of myself. The rich, the avaricious rich, it's not just having, it's a disposition toward the wealth. The avaricious takes pleasure in himself himself As a possessor of riches. Why? Because it makes him feel both self-sufficient and superior to others. And Aquinas says that avarice is one of the causes of insensitivity to mercy. Not even noticing that others are afflicted. We're always worried about the avaricious and those who are insensitive to mercy. The judges who don't really care about justice. The rich people who think that their wealth gives them a place in heaven. There's one other thing that I want to talk about briefly, and then I'll go back through the images. Which has to do with, we'll get too complicated here, it has to do with the difference between how we interact with images. And the contrast is between an idolatrous relation to images or what is called an iconic relation. You're familiar with the, particularly in the Eastern tradition, with the painting of icons. That's the principal source of this, but I'm going to use icon a little bit differently. So, and, and I, I, I want to just put out there, as I did earlier with the suggestion about anger resting upon pools of sorrow, that I think our relationship to images in our culture is increasingly idolatrous. Doesn't mean that we're literally worshiping the golden calf and offering sacrifices. That's not what I mean by idolatry. The French Catholic philosopher Jean-Luc Marion, who writes like a lot of French people in ways that are really hard to understand, but he's got a sentence about about the idol that's, I think, very succinct and very clear. The image as idol presents itself in accord with the expectation of desire. So the image presents itself as satisfying the expectation of our desires. What you see is what you get, and what you see is what you wanted to come to see. So you have a set of desires, and the image pops up as it could on your screen at any moment, and that image satisfies the desires that you bring to the image. Another way of putting this, is that an idolatrous relation to images is a consumer relation to images. I know what I want, and I make it appear. By the way, that notion of wanting and appearing, technology does this increasingly well for us. Tolkien, in one of his letters, when he talks about the similarity between technology and magic, and magic is often, in his work, as it is in J.K. Rowling's work and in C.S. Lewis's work, magic is often a stand-in for technology. Tolkien says, magic and technology are trying to do the same thing, which is what? Eliminate to the vanishing point, or narrow down to the vanishing point, the gap between I want it and it appears. That's what magic does, that's what technology does. So, you could have walked into this room, which has these old-fashioned light switches in it, and if you wanted light, you flip the switch. If you're in Harry Potter, you pull out your wand and say, Lumos. Both of those are instantaneous ways of making what I want appear. Another way to talk about the idolatry of the image is that the the idolatrous image never questions or tries to transform the desires you bring with you to the image. An icon questions and tries to transform the the desires that you bring to it. Okay, let's run back through these. Let me start at the beginning. It is precisely because we bring disordered desires to images and to art. And Roe thought at the end of the First World War this was especially problematic throughout Europe. That artists have to, in some sense, accuse or offend the viewer. Now you've heard a certain view about 20th century art that it becomes just about offending conventional sensibilities. Where that exists, that's a, a, an art that has lost any larger meaning. It's offending for its own sake. Ruo is not trying to offend us just for the sake of offending us. But we come to the art with disordered desires. We're incapable of it seeing clearly what it is that the artist presents. Are we not all convicts supposing ourselves kings? Look at that Look at that face. That's not a royal look, is it? That's a, that's a seriously distorted, haughty look. Are we not all convicts supposing ourselves kings? Who does not wear a mask? We're trying to get us He's trying to get behind the face, to use a line from one of T.S. Eliot's early poems, the Love Song of Rock. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Right? Preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet. Putting on a mask. Right? Presenting an image of yourself to others. That's an image that you've constructed and that you want them to see while you hide other things from them and perhaps from yourself. Who does not wear a mask? The mask is what? The mask allows us to present ourselves as kings when we actually know in our heart that we're convicts or sinners. If we have an idolatrous relation to images, we especially have idolatrous relations to images of ourselves. Images that we construct in our own head, that we like to think of ourselves in terms of, and images that we like to present to others which present us in ways that are to some degree false and deceptive of others. Let's go back. Notice the image of Christ. Jesus despised. Jesus always flagellated. Notice the posture here. The posture of Christ is similar, almost exact when I hit those the change in the screen. It almost occupies the same exact frame, if you were to superimpose them on top of one another, as this vagabond of misfortune. The vagabond of misfortune has an advantage over many of the other characters in this series of images because the vagabond knows that he's lost, that he's suffering, that he has been subject to bad fortune. So as I say, we go through... A number of these images that we end up with we're all wanting to suggest that here's an image that we ought to look at. An image that will help us to put down the images that we construct of ourselves and confront our true self before the true image of God in Christ on the cross. This Recognition scene. Here we're all brings these images of human beings and Christ together in the same frame. Where the human being recognizes Christ and is recognized by Christ. Let's talk about Veronica. The true image. What I said about idolatrous images indicates that we have a kind of habit of constructing them and of, in a sense, worshiping them. We also have in our culture, the philosophical culture, and especially in our culture and the arts, really interesting stuff is done with this in film, for instance, of thinking of images as always referencing other images, which reference other images, reference other images in a kind of infinite regress or circle, where you kind of have a house of mirrors where you can't tell what's real and what's not. This is a series of images without any original, without an exemplar, without the real thing that the image is mirroring. This is a strong view in philosophy and in art culture, that it's all just a play of images, and you can't get back to anything that's real, to anything that is an exemplar. Notice what the does here. And we're all in... A lot of his early paintings there are mirrors, particularly in scenes where he paints prostitutes who are living in the area in which he lived. And they're they're looking at a mirror, which then we see them through the mirror. He was preoccupied with this notion of the construction of images. Notice here what's going on. We have an, an image on that wall. We have an image within an image. And that image within the image is an image of what? Veronica's veil. An image within an image, that's an image of Veronica's veil, which is an image of what? Of Christ. Who is, we know from Colossians, the image of the invisible God. An image within an image, of an image, of an image, that's the image of the invisible God. He knew what he was doing when he constructs these overlapping or intersecting sets of images. Some of what he was concerned with in the culture and what we saw earlier was the human tendency toward vanity. We know from Ecclesiastes, all is vanity in a chase after wind, right? This kind of vain self-conception that occurs through human images. But I would suggest that what we're always doing here is he's playing with that modern suggestion. That everything is just an image of an image of an image of an image endlessly. But of course, Roe's point here is that in the Christian tradition, we talk a lot about it. Genesis begins with creating human beings, male and female, in our image. We created them. We have Christ as the image of the invisible God. So Roe thinks in some way he's solving this problem. Of the image by giving us an exemplar in Christ. Why should we buy that? Is that just a religious assertion? So I think also that Rollo thinks that a lot of our a lot of our construction of idolatrous images that help us to deceive others and even to deceive ourselves. That at the root of that is a kind of fear of death, a fear of our own nothingness. So we construct images which make us think that we're more real than we are. So before he gets to the recognition scene, before he gets to Veronica, he has a bunch of scenes of death, right, on the cross, this tomb. What's he suggesting? He knows that we're afraid of that. That's natural, right? We can't, as some ancient and early modern philosopher said, fully make a friend of death, even if we meditate on death. Death is, as Paul tells us, the last enemy to be destroyed. It's an enemy. And Roe would just be cruel if he were saying, think about death, face death, look at skulls. What he's suggesting is as we think about death, and as we think about our own mortality, as we look toward our own grave, our own death. What if we discovered someone waiting for us there? What if we discovered someone who had embraced death, not out of despair and nihilism, but out of love and out of a hope in a life beyond. What if that same person, when we encounter him, knows us better than we know ourselves? And knows particularly all those things we keep secret from the rest of the world in the way in which we construct images, both for ourselves and others, to hide those parts of ourselves. Think of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Right, who has this very funny kind of comical conversation with Christ because he's talking to her about living waters. And she's like, yeah, give me. She, wants, she thinks Christ is going to give her indoor plumbing, right? Yeah, give me that water. I won't have to come here to the left. But Christ is talking about a different kind of water. But the key moment is when he tells her, you're right, you don't have one husband. You've had five already, and the one you're living with now is not with her husband. And she's thinking, okay, what's going on here? But he does it in a way that invites her to experience what? Mercy, misericordia, not condemnation. He knows, and she runs off to town saying, what? Come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did, who knows me better than I know myself. If that person were waiting at your tomb to reach you, that makes a difference. That's the Christ that Rouleau is attempting to introduce his contemporaries who, what, are existing under a Jesus on a cross that they have totally forgotten. He's attempting to take into his art the miseries, the misfortunes, the vanity, and the disorders of early 20th century Western European life, and to reintroduce his fellow citizens to the true teaching of Christ, which is an image of Christ that Veronica bears. Veronica is known as carrying along her linen as an act of mercy. Right? Veronica is the bearer of Christ's mercy. So these sorrows, these despairs that we experience in our soul, the disorders, the inability at times to sort things out, to say what refers to what, how is there order in the midst of this? Art is attempting to camp out in the midst of that human temptation to despair, to the sense that there is no order, to the sense that even if I recognized the disorders in my soul, I couldn't do anything about it. And at bottom, this fear that I don't want to even articulate or face, the fear of my own death. And he's a t- that's why he can say here, in this very grim-looking picture, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live And that's how the very next image can be. An image, it's black and white, so it doesn't look all that uh, illuminating, but the brightest image in the entire series, Sing Matins, the day is renewed. Thank you.